also, as I'm sure you've noticed, I'm not Dow. Uh, he's not here this morning, so you guys are going to be stuck with me today. Um, and I think the last time I preached was about three months ago, and I'm going to say the same thing now that I said then. We're going to take a break from our study of Luke 15, and <laughs> some of you got that faster than others. Uh, but this morning, we're going to take a look into the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 6 specifically. Uh, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, and I've shown some of this to the youth before, uh, but I want to today unpack it even a little bit more uh, than that. So to kind of kick things off, I want to tell you guys a little story, okay? When I was in high school, I was on a school trip to Washington, D.C. It's pretty cool. While I was there, I won the one and only raffle of my life, and I won an opportunity to get a tour of the White House and a short face-to-face -face meeting with the president, who at the time was George W. Bush. After, uh, sorry about that, I forgot these again. I did this last time, some of you might remember that. There's W. So I got a call that night from the White House secretary saying that the meeting had to be moved. It was originally going to be at 10 a.m., you know, normal time, but this, uh, this particular meeting had to be moved to 7 a.m. So I was like, okay, that's, that's fine. I set my alarm for 5, and I went to bed. What I didn't realize at the time, though, was that I had actually set my alarm for 5 p.m., and because we didn't have iPhones, and to all my youth students out there, by the way, phones used to open, all right, cell phones, they opened up, and they weren't smart, okay? So I, I did not get a notification that looked like this. I did not get a notification that asked me if I really meant to set the alarm for PM. My phone's like, okay, 5 PM, that's good. So in the morning, I get a phone call, and it was from the same White House secretary asking where I was. I was supposed to be there, and I look at the time, it's 6.45. So I desperately am running around uh, my room, pulling on my socks, falling over every few times. And while this is happening, nothing is happening on the other end of the phone. It's just silent. So I get done. I have my tie tied and everything. And she finally speaks again, and she says, sorry, it's, it's too late. And she hung up. And that was that. I'd missed an encounter with the most powerful man in the world simply because I was careless. So there's probably some really nice and uplifting and encouraging things that you would be thinking about me in that moment, right? Maybe if you were feeling a little charitable, you might would say, well, that was just unfortunate. Most of you are probably thinking something a little closer to, well, this kid really messed this up. Or, as the great philosopher and theologian Fred Sanford would say, you big dummy. <laughs> That's probably what you guys would have been thinking. But I do have some good news with this story, so don't worry. The good news is, is that none of it's true. It's, it's all a lie. None of the story was true, but the point of this story was to serve... <laughs> <What>? <laughs> that was some really delayed laughter, but I'll take it. The point of this story, though... Is to serve as an illustration for how our lack of thinking can lead us to missing our encounter with the most powerful being in the entire universe. 
Each and every time that we come in contact with God's word, we are encountering God himself. Unfortunately, we often miss this encounter simply because our head isn't in the right place. So today we'll look at Isaiah's encounter with God, and thankfully he didn't miss it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, I just, I just want to thank you for this opportunity that we have this morning to worship you. God, this opportunity that we have to study your word without fear of serious persecution. God, I pray that you honor that this morning. God, I want to lift up each and every person in this room. I ask that uh, you clear all of the distractions from our lives, from our brains right now. That you allow us to be completely focused on you. I lift up the teachers and students that are about to start school uh, this coming week and the following weeks. I ask that you prepare them uh, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. God, as we continue with this worship service, I pray that above all else, you allow everything that we do this morning to glorify you. We love you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as I mentioned earlier, we'll be in Isaiah 6 this morning. Uh, So there's kind of a lot to unpack in Isaiah 6. So we'll we'll start off with some context, okay? All right, in this passage, Isaiah is recalling a vision that he got from God. Some scholars will tell you that they think Isaiah 6 actually happened before Isaiah 1 through 5. I kind of think of it as, you know, maybe Isaiah started telling a story and realized he forgot to tell the beginning, so then he told the beginning. So that's kind of what I'm thinking happened here. Isaiah 6 is Isaiah... Uh, telling the story of how God called him. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. The prophet says in the beginning of, of Isaiah 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Right? The first thing uh, that, that sticks out to me here is that Isaiah is pointing out that King Uzziah died in the year that he received this vision. Now this isn't just some you know, little fact that you might be able to use to get a question right while you're watching Jeopardy with your family one night. This is actually significant. Isaiah is contrasting King Uzziah to God here. King Uzziah, who by most accounts for most of his life, not the end, but most of his life, led pretty well and led the nation into prosperity for 50-something years. This was the only king that most of the people in the kingdom had ever known. And he just died. This is a big deal. But in contrast to this, Isaiah is showing that the Lord God is living. King Uzziah might be dead, but the Lord God is living. God is not like King Uzziah. God will never relinquish his throne because God is always alive. The rest of the verse says this in the year that I, or in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The last word of this verse kind of stands out because it's the setting of this story. The the setting of this vision is the temple. And as we'll see later, the temple was a place of worship, it was a place of confession, and it was a place where sometimes sacrifices were made on the altar. In Jewish custom, no one was allowed in the most inner part of the temple. This most inner part was called the Holy of Holies. Nobody was allowed in it except for God because he can go where he wants. And the high priest. If anybody else went in it, they died. Boom dead. Sometimes even the high priest would die. What they would do is they would tie a rope around their ankle, okay, just in case after, you know, maybe six, seven, eight hours they haven't heard anything from the high priest, 
then they could assume he was dead and they would pull him out. Right? So the Holy of Holies, pretty serious place. Nobody's allowed in there except the high priest and God, and sometimes it didn't even go well for the high priest. So that's where this vision is taking place. Right? This Holy of Holies was called this because this was where God would reveal himself in a more direct way, and we'll see some of that later. We also see that when uh, Isaiah sees the Lord here in this Holy of Holies, he sees him seated on a throne, high and lifted up. Right? His being seated on a throne obviously shows that he's a king, right? That one's pretty easy. Right? He's a king. But the fact that he is high and lifted up, right? the fact that he is exalted on this throne, it's not just like a little chair, he's up. Right? This is part of the reason why we see in other parts of Scripture that, that God is called the most high king. He's literally the most high in heaven. He is lifted up. He is exalted. Right? That's both a, uh, a literal lifting and a metaphoric lifting up. Now, the end of this verse uh, ends with something that I think is, is pretty cool, okay? It says that the train of his robe filled the temple. That might not mean much to you, but back in the day, and I mean way back in the day, during uh, ancient times, kings would usually wear robes, okay? And something that kings liked to do with their robes was not just show their royalty, but show their power. And one way that they did this was if King A conquered the land of King B, King A would take the train of the robe from King B's robe and have somebody sew it to the back of his robe, making his robe even longer. Does that make sense? All right. So if the train of God's robe was filled throughout the temple, then that tells us that God must be the Lord of all lands so much to the point that the train of his robe filled the entire temple. He is the Lord of all so Isaiah sees something else. Flying above the Lord's head, Isaiah sees the seraphim, which are a type of angel. I got nothing. Anyway, uh, verse 2, uh, the beginning of it says, Above him stood the seraphim. All right, these aren't the type of angels you might be thinking of, though. All right, a lot of us like to think, of those, you know, cute little blonde chubby babies with little bows and arrows that have heart-shaped points on the arrows. Yeah, you think of that, and they, they flitter around on a cloud all day. Right, that's what some people think of when they think of angels. Isaiah tells us that these dudes look a little bit different. All right, in the rest of the verse, it says that each had six wings. With two, he flew. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. So not only do these guys have a lot of wings, all right, but this word seraphim, okay, if translated from the Hebrew, probably means something roughly similar to brightly burning ones. Right? Basically, they look as if they're on fire, they are so bright. So cute little blonde chubby baby versus six-winged fiery thing. All right? This isn't the type of angel you might be expecting, but this is what Isaiah sees. Now, Isaiah uh, doesn't tell us about this, but if we look at the rest of Scripture, we can see why they look this way, okay? If we look at Moses in the book of Exodus, we see uh, that there's kind of an explanation for why the angels look this way. Remember here that two wings uh, the seraphim used to cover their face? Well, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses has his face covered by God when God is about to pass him by. 
Right? In Exodus chapter 3, we see Moses cover his, or take off his shoes because he's on holy ground, just like the seraphim here are covering their feet. And in Exodus 34, we see that Moses' face shone brightly, just like these brightly burning ones, these seraphim would have been shining brightly because they're in the presence of the glory of God. All right, so at this point, seeing the Lord seated on his throne high and lifted up and seeing these six-winged fiery things flying around, Isaiah's probably pretty terrified. He gets more scared in a second because then these burning winged creatures start shouting. In verse 3, we see that uh, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These seraphim are worshiping. They're not just flying around. They're not just hanging out. They're worshiping God in heaven. They're worshiping God in this holy of holies. And the primary subject of their worship, this, this is important, the primary subject of their worship is the fact that God is holy and glorious. The primary subject of their worship is not just, oh, God blessed me, so I will praise him today. The primary subject of their worship is not, well, God saved me, so I will, I will praise him. The primary subject of their worship isn't, well, I will worship God in hopes that he blesses me further or that he will take care of me and my family. No, the primary subject of their worship is that God is holy and glorious. This is true, this has always been true, and this will always be true, no matter what. All right, God would still be holy and glorious even if he didn't answer your prayers the way that you think he should have. God would still be holy and glorious even when bad things happen in this world. God would still be holy and glorious even if he didn't bless you financially or bless you with good health. He's still holy and glorious. Even if God hadn't saved you specifically, God would still be holy and glorious. And you might be looking at me thinking, well, you've said these words holy and glorious a whole lot. And you're right, I have. We hear these words in church a lot. We hear them in Sunday school. We hear people use them. But if we were to really be honest, we might not have a full understanding of what those words actually mean. Well, Holy can be defined pretty simply, I think. Right? It just means that God is different. God is other, so to speak. Set apart. Right? A guy named R.C. Sproul, uh, he recently passed away. He's a, he's a very gifted pastor and theologian. He defined God's otherness, God's holiness like this. He said, God alone has the power of being. He is not nothing. He is not chance. He is pure being. He is the one who has the power to be all by himself. He alone is eternal. He alone has power over death. He alone can call words, worlds into being. Such power is staggering. It is awesome. It is deserving of respect and humble adoration. That's God's holiness. It's the fact that he is different. He is other. He is set apart from everything else. Nothing is like God. Now, his glory is a little bit harder to describe, uh, but if I were to try to summarize everything that I've read either in Scripture or from uh, scholars who are a lot smarter than me, uh, I would probably say that God's glory is the expression of everything that makes God God. 
Okay, so when we see a beautiful sunset and it reminds us of God's power as creator, we see his glory. When we see a person love someone in a sacrificial manner because they have a love for God and a love for God's people, we see God's glory. Right? When scripture talks about the brightness of God's glory, like we've even talked about some with these seraphim, when scripture talks about the brightness of God's glory, it is saying that God is so good, so powerful, so majestic, so beautiful, so wonderful, that looking at him directly, it's pretty much impossible, like looking directly at a bright sun. There's something else we see in verse 3, though. And this is that the seraphim call God holy three times. There's a lot of reasons for this. One, and most obviously, they're emphasizing the fact that God is holy. So when they say that he is holy, 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 they are saying he is holy, holy, holy. They are emphasizing the fact that he is holy. A second thing, and this is something that's kind of unique about the Hebrew language, that sometimes the Hebrew language uses comparative and superlative adjectives in a different way than we do. Just by a show of hands, unless you're embarrassed, who has no idea what a comparative or superlative adjective is? Thank you for being honest. (laughs) I think there's more of you who don't know and you're just trying to hide. My English teacher wife would be very disappointed if I did not know what these were. So I will tell you, a comparative adjective is when one, one thing is compared to another. So if you're thinking of comparing things and one is one size and one is other, one is going to be bigger than the other. Bigger is the comparative adjective. Now a superlative adjective is when one thing is compared to all other things. So if you're comparing this one thing to all other things, one of the things must be the biggest. So biggest would be your superlative adjective here. All right, so in the word set of big, bigger, biggest, big is your base adjective, bigger is your comparative one, and biggest is your superlative adjective. In Hebrew, they sometimes use comparative and superlative adjectives like normally as we would think normal is, like we do in English, but sometimes they do it a little differently. Sometimes they do it just by repeating themselves. So instead of saying bigger, sometimes in Hebrew they might would say big, big doesn't really sound like something we would do in English, but this is something that they would sometimes do in Hebrew. Now, in order to say biggest, you've probably caught on by now, sometimes they will say big, 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 all right? And this use of three, it was pretty rare. It was to signify the thing that was actually the biggest. So if the seraphim are singing that God is holy, 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 not only are they emphasizing the fact that he is holy, they are proclaiming out in their worship that God is the holiest, Nothing could be as holy as God, period. There's nothing worth even comparing because of all things that could possibly be considered holy, God is number one. God is the holiest. The third thing is that the repetition of saying a word three times in Hebrew would have been pretty rare outside of this context. In order to call God holy, 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 the seraphim were saying that God is, like we said a minute ago, that Uh, He is the holiest being in the entire universe. They weren't using this superlative adjective in the way that we might do it. We exaggerate a lot in the English language. I don't know if you know that. We exaggerate a lot when we use superlative adjectives specifically. I can think, for example, of a time 
when my sister made a dessert at my house and it was very good and I told her it was the best I'd ever had. That wasn't true. I was wrapped up in my emotions of eating this delicious dessert and I called it the best. We exaggerate when we use superlative adjectives and this one's for Dow for when he listens later. Maybe you get some bacon at Denny's and you say this apple wood cut bacon is the thickest slice of bacon I've ever had. You might be exaggerating using your superlative adjectives. The Hebrew people didn't do that. If they were going to use one of these superlative adjectives or repeat something three times to act as a superlative adjective, they meant it. Right? They wouldn't just willy-nilly throw around calling God holy, holy, holy. They wouldn't do it in an exaggerating way. They would do it only if God was holy, holy, holy. So Isaiah, translating this song of the seraphim, is saying that they were saying that God is most certainly, without a doubt, the holiest. But while all this happening, or while all this is happening, there's something else going on. In verse 4, we see that the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah, upon seeing the Lord and seeing his fiery six-winged angels and hearing them shouting and feeling the temple shakes, has finally had enough. He is terrified. He has to respond. Verse 5, Isaiah says this, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah sees God, he finally sees himself as lost and unclean. He even says the phrase, Woe is me which doesn't just mean, oh, I'm sad now. That's not what it means, okay? When he says, woe is me, this is basically him explaining that I am so unworthy of being in the presence of this perfect, almighty, high, and lifted up, holy, holy, holy God that I deserve to die. I am so unworthy, I deserve to die. This God is perfect. He is almighty. He is the Lord of all. I am lost and unclean. I deserve to die. That's what this proclamation of woe is me is, uh, is meaning here. And because Isaiah now sees God for who he is, he sees himself for who he is, a lost sinner who is unworthy of God. And even though this book is written about a thousand years later, even more than that, uh, Isaiah kind of teaches a principle we see in Romans. In Romans 3.23, we see that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6, 23, we see that the wages of this sin is death. Isaiah is understanding the magnitude of his sin. Because he is a sinner, he understands that the wages of that sin is death. He deserves to die. And so because he thinks he's going to die in verse 5, when something happens in verse 6, he really thinks it's going to happen then. Because in verse 6, it says, One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So the six-winged fiery guy is holding more fire in his hand and flying at this terrified man who just said he deserved to die. He thinks this is the end. He thinks he's about to get the thing that he deserves as a sinner, which is death. But God doesn't give Isaiah what he deserves here. Despite the fact that he was a sinner, God showed mercy and grace on Isaiah. We see in verse 7, he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. 
Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God graciously gave Isaiah something he didn't deserve and he mercifully didn't give him the thing that he did deserve. This gracious gift from God to Isaiah is said here that it is atonement for sin. Atonement is the complete covering of something. So if we're talking about the atonement of sin, we are talking about the complete covering from the negative implications on the soul of sin. Now we get this word atone uh, from another Old Testament story, at least according to some scholars. They say that the story of Noah in Genesis was maybe the first example of the use of the word atone in Scripture. And in this story, you know, Noah, you know, he built a boat, he built an ark, all right? But there's a problem with trying to have a big wooden thing be in water for a long time. Anybody who's ever, uh, ever had a deck made of wood outside knows they have to do what to the wood? What do they have to do to it? Come on, somebody. Yeah, you have to seal it, you have to treat it, all right? But... Noah couldn't just go to Lowe's for a second and grab some Thompson's Water Seal Advance or some Minwax polyurethane blend. All right, he couldn't do that. So what he had was tar. Okay, so in, in Noah's story, we see that what he did was he took tar and he atoned the ark with tar, meaning that he completely covered it to keep the negative effects of the water from ruining the boat. So when we talk about atonement for sin... We are saying that there is something that is completely covering the effects of sin from whomever is receiving the atonement. So when Isaiah is receiving atonement for a sin here, he is having his sin completely covered by something. Now, not everyone agrees with this, but I think Isaiah is being saved in this passage. I think this is Isaiah's conversion moment. Right? I believe that with this atonement for sin came salvation from sin. And the reason I think this is because I think there's something in here that's a little harder to see. Actually, someone here that might be a little harder to see. I'd argue that I see Jesus in this passage. As a matter of fact, um, in the Old Testament, according to Levitical law, right, in order to receive atonement from God for sin, all right, God's people had to make sacrifices, usually in the form of burnt offerings, for that atonement. Okay? But we see in the New Testament, in uh, Hebrews 10, 14, and 18, that for by Christ's offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus ended the sacrificial system, meaning it was no longer necessary because he was the perfect and ultimate forever sacrifice. So I think we see Jesus in this passage because there was a particular place that this seraphim picked up this burning coal from the altar, from the, sacrif the sacrificial altar. And I believe that this is a picture of Jesus Christ being the atonement for Isaiah's sin. Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection provided atonement for sin, not just for Christians after that point, but for those who lived before him who were on earth at the same time and those who would come later. That's how powerful the, the redeeming work of Jesus was. I believe we see Jesus in this passage because of that. And I think even the disciple John believes this because in John 12, 41, 
John, when he's talking about something Isaiah said and talking about Jesus, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. I believe Isaiah had an encounter with Jesus here, and Isaiah was saved in this passage. Now, this salvation that was received by Isaiah in Isaiah 6 is received by us actually in the same way. Not by a burning angel touching our mouth with a hot coal, that's not what I mean, but through Jesus Christ, God the Son, serving as the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin. At the same time, God the Father is revealing himself to us just as he revealed himself to Isaiah, or he reveals himself as Lord, as King, and the Holy Spirit shows us our brokenness, our sinful realities, that we are lost, that we are unclean, and that we deserve to die. All of these things are happening for us just like they happen for Isaiah. And the salvation doesn't happen because we thought it was a good idea to try to find it. The salvation actually happens because God takes the initiative. A lost people, and as Isaiah says, who have unclean lips and come from a people of unclean lips, we could never come to God on our own. We couldn't do it. But thankfully, God came to us. Bruce Hurt explains it like this. If salvation had been left up to us, we would still be in our sins. But thank God he lovingly took the initiative. He launched the search. He sent Christ to die for our sins while we were wandering from the fold. While we were sinners deserving of death and separation from God, God brought atonement to us and made us his sons and his daughters. This gospel is good news for all of us who are Christians and who have received this gospel. In fact, this news is so good that it should elicit a response from us. Isaiah responded in the next verse in Isaiah 6, 8. He says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. The Lord has commanded his people to preach the good news of the gospel to the entire earth. All right, just as Isaiah heard the Lord saying that this was necessary, we read it in Scripture. We read it in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. We read it in the repetition of the Great Commission in Acts chapter 1. We read it in Romans 10. We are to preach the word of God through the way we live and through the way we speak and through proclaiming the gospel to everyone. We're supposed to do that. I believe that our response has to be like Isaiah's response. Whom shall I send? Here I am, Lord, send me. Whom shall I send to preach the good news to your lost family members? Well, here I am, Lord, send me. Whom shall I send to preach the good news in your workplace? Well, here I am, Lord, send me. Whom shall I send in your schools where there are lost people being taught by lost people every day? Here I am, Lord, send me. Whom shall I send to the ends of the earth with the gospel? Here I am, Lord, send me. Whom shall I send at Holland Avenue to raise up disciples who make more disciples? Here I am, Lord, send me. And this response to the gospel where we cannot help 
but to teach others. We cannot help but to preach the gospel. It can't be based upon the results of that preaching. What I mean by that is this. Too often I hear Christians, and I'm guilty of this too, explaining why they don't preach the gospel to someone because they're afraid that they're not going to listen anyway. Well, Isaiah runs into this problem in this passage. In verses 9 and 10, it shows the Lord telling Isaiah, basically, the people aren't going to listen no matter what. They're not going to listen to you. And Isaiah says, well, okay, how long do you want me to preach to them? This is the Lord's response. The second half of Isaiah 6.11 says, And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. There's a lot of things that that particular verse means, but one of them, I believe, is that the Lord is telling Isaiah, You preach the gospel till there are no more people to preach the gospel to. You preach the gospel until there is no more life left. Basically, You preach the gospel forever. You never stop. I believe that's the same call that God has given us as Christians, to preach the gospel continuously, to never stop. I want us to remember that Christians should never stop shouting the same thing that Isaiah shouted in verse 8. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Because if we truly acknowledge that this God who is holy, 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 loved us enough to send his son to die on our behalf when we were lost, unclean sinners, that should be something that excites us. That should be something that changes us. That should be something that causes us to not be able to help but to proclaim the good news of the gospel every day that we live.